morning. Our reading today is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, and it can be found on page 6 of your bulletin if you'd like to read along. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly to you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, free, slave, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Amen. That is a rich, rich, rich passage of scripture. It's got too much in there, in fact, for me to delve into the depths of all of it this morning. So I want to take the time we have together particularly to focus our attention on the first four verses of the passage that was just read into your hearing from Colossians chapter 3. I want to talk to you this morning on this subject. Keep your heads in the clouds. Keep your heads in the clouds. And every time I preach, I try to have just kind of a simple statement, a theme, if you will, that because I'm under no illusion that you're going to hear everything that I have to say this morning. And so if you don't hear anything else, hear and remember this, that Jesus calls us to have our lives shaped by the heavenly reality. That Jesus calls us to have our lives shaped by the heavenly reality. Would you pray with me? 
Oh Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this word this morning that is not dead, but that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And our confession, Lord, this morning is that we are all naked and exposed to you, the one to whom we must all give account. And so, Lord, you know precisely what we stand in need of this morning. In your mercy, would you take my weak and unworthy efforts in your word and use them to meet us where we are and give us what we need? Father, if we need faith, would you give us the gift of faith? Lord, if we need to be encouraged, would you come and encourage our hearts through the preaching of your word? And if we need to be convicted or corrected, Lord, in your mercy, would you correct us that we would be and become people who live not for our glory, but for the glory of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen, amen, amen and amen. Well, earlier this month, I was uh, visiting with a couple of pastors uh, to talk with them about the vision and the desires of this new uh, institute that we are establishing here. And both of these pastors I was talking to are a white. One is older than me, and the other pastor uh, is around seven years younger than me or so. And I tell you this age reference uh, because the younger pastor told me a story um, about an incident that took place in his senior year in high school. And now, right, I'm, I'm 49, and so this younger pastor is still in his early 40s. And so his senior year in high school would have been around the early 1990s, not too long ago. We were having this conversation about race and ethnicity, crossing cultural lines and the challenges that it presents. And then he shared this story of this memorable experience of overt racism in his life. The pastor grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and so he had lots of black friends and was used to interacting with with black folk on a daily basis. And he played on his football team. He was an offensive lineman. Uh, for those of you who are not as familiar with football, uh, it's a very important position, but it doesn't get a lot of glory. <laughs> I was an offensive lineman, just <laughs> FYI. So uh, he played the offensive line, and, and, and there were only on his high school team, there were only four white players on the team, and all four of them were on the offensive line. And they took great pride in the work that they did, the grunt work of blocking for their quarterback and opening holes for their phenomenal all-star running back. In fact, this all-star running back, who was so good one day, he, even, he made it to the NFL and played for the Arizona Cardinals. And so this team that they had was among the tops in the state of Georgia that year. And, and, uh, and because their team was so good, they had the opportunity to play for the state championships. For this game, they had to travel to another part of the state of Georgia that was not so diverse. And they said when they arrived, when they arrived and they 
stepped off of the bus, the, the path into, uh, into the, the stadium was, was lined with, uh, with fans of the opposing team on both sides of the path. And as they walked as a team together, uh, carrying their, you know, they're carrying their helmet and their shoulder pads, and they're walking together uh, into uh, the stadium, they, they are hearing the crowds shout at them the most offensive and repulsive racial insults at them. This experience left them a little bit disoriented, he said. He, when they started the game, his team got the ball first, and they, they couldn't make a first down. It was three plays and out. And so they had to punt the football, and the position that this pastor played on that team on the line, he was the center. And so it was his responsibility uh, to, to hike the football to either the quarterback or the punter. And somehow, because of the nervousness, he managed in that first punting opportunity to hike the football right over the head of their six-foot-six punter. <laughs> the ball rolled into the end zone, and the opposing team fell on the ball and scored a touchdown, and they're up 7 nothing at the very outset of the game. He said they settled down a little bit. In uh, halftime, the score was still 7 to nothing. But as they are leaving the field, going back into the locker room, Guess what happens? The fans are on both sides of that, of that path again, shouting again the same racial slurs and insults at the team. And they get back in the locker room, and they're unnerved, and they're sitting kind of quietly. And then at a particular moment, one of uh, the players, that star running back that I mentioned earlier, he gets up in the middle of the, of the room, in, in the locker room, and he says, Ain't nobody gonna call me an N. He didn't say N. And a few of the players started shaking and said, Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But then something, something else happened. This white pastor says to me, for whatever reason, he gets up in the middle of his teammates and says, Ain't nobody gonna call me an N. <laughs> He said, and the room exploded in cheers, and they, they all said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, and we went out in the second half, and we whipped their tails. The, the game, we, the, the score, the final score of the game was 37 to 7. You know what that story is about? One of the things that story about is about is identity. It's a story about how the groups that we are a part of help to form our sense of who we are. Who are you? Who are your people? This pastor said that even as he told me that story, he was getting chills all over again. That was a defining moment where those African-American players were saying to him, you're one of us. And he was saying to them by his action, I'm with you in this. I am welcoming and embracing what it means to belong here. What does it mean to have our identities formed and shaped and even rocked by the experience of intimate community across lines of deep difference? Well, God has something 
to say about that. God has something to say about the issue of our image and our identity. You see, here is the deal. Here it is, right? The central person in the Bible is Jesus Christ. And he is, he is at the center in part in order to deal with our image problem. Tell you what I'm talking about. Let me tell you what the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Colossians, what he reminds the Colossians about Jesus in chapter 1 of this letter. It was a song that the early church would sing, and the lyrics went like this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for all things were created by him in the heavens and on the earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been made through him and for him, and he is before everything, and all things hold together in him, and he is the head of the body, the church, of which he is the first cause, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be first. The church's song is that Jesus is first, first cause, firstborn, first over everything, and he is preeminently the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the only one to ever walk the earth and not have an image or identity problem. In fact, he came on the scene to take care of the image and identity problem that we have. So Paul wants to tell the Colossians how they're supposed to be living. And he wants to tell them how they're supposed to be living here in chapter 3. You heard it read. He says to them down in verse 9, do not lie to one another, right? Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you have put on the new self, which, he says, is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, comes to renew us in knowledge after his image. Why? Because, as Paul says in verse 3, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Jesus does the re-imaging work that is needed by swallowing us up into himself. And because of that, God tells us here in his word to keep our heads in the clouds. I ain't talking about daydreaming. <laughs> thinking of la la, thinking about birds and trees. And... No, God in Jesus Christ makes us heavenly minded people. But heavenly mindedness is not pie in the sky thinking, it means out with the old and in with the new. I will. It means out with the old and in with the new. <laughs> Two things, right? Two things in the rest of this message. I'm going to talk about a new we and a new world. A new we and a new world. These first four verses of chapter 3 in Colossians, they pack a heavy punch. Since therefore, he says, you've been raised with Christ Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
when Christ appears, who is your life, then you also will appear with him in glory. The, the dominant idea is that life is now different if you're a Christian. And the first way that it's different is that there's a new we, there's a different us. The Apostle Paul is saying to the Colossians, there's a new program I want y'all to follow, and it's called This Is Us. Let me tell you what it looks like. I, I, I want us to take, in fact, I need us to take note of the fact that every time the personal pronoun you appears in this text, it's plural. And I often point that out in my sermons when it's there in the Greek text because in English you can say you and mean you individual, or you can say you and mean y'all plural. And unless you're from the South, you don't really say y'all a lot. The norm, the, the norm when we read the Bible, right, the norm for reading the Bible through the cultural lens of life in America is to approach it from an individual perspective. I'm not saying necessarily that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's how it usually is. So when I read, if, therefore, you were raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. I, I'm thinking I've been raised with Jesus Christ. I have this new resurrection life in, in me that Christ has raised from, been raised from the dead and I've been raised with him. I'm supposed to think the, seek the things that are above. Well, that's true, but it's not the whole deal. The norm in the Bible is not simply that God is making a new person He's not simply making a new me, he's making a new we. He's making a new people. The city of Colossae was a place where many different religions and philosophical views thrived. And the word for that is pluralism. It is not very different uh, uh, from life here today in this city. It was ethnic and cultural diversity in the city of Colossae, but there was also a lot of religious diversity. And so when Christianity came to that city, it was added into the mix. Right? The temptation in that kind of setting is that, like, can we find a way to make this Christianity thing fit in with our other beliefs? Like, can we get some synchronization going on? Right? Aren't Aren't these things all really the same? And this, this one, if, I'll take a little from here and a little from there and, ma and make my own way. And so from the beginning of this letter, the Apostle Paul has been driving home the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Everything else is false, and Jesus is true. He calls for exclusive obedience. But listen, Jesus is inclusive in his exclusivity. He's creating this new people, it's this new we, and everybody is invited. You heard him say, Paul say in verse 118 that I read that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And then down in chapter 3 and verse 11, he says here, here, here in this body, in Jesus' body, here in the church, he says, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. There's a 
different we in Jesus' body, and no one is excluded on the basis of ethnicity or race or gender or age or social status or education or anything else that we think makes us who we are. And let me say this because, because it's important. What's being described here is not a, a kind of colorblindness. It's not a I don't see color attitude. But we just try to minimize or ignore difference. When, when Paul says there is not Greek and Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, he says it because there were Greek and Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free in the church. And everybody knew who everybody was. See, like when you see me, you see my blackness. Right? Pastor Duke, I see your Koreanness. Oh, brother Halase, I see your Africanness wherever you are. <laughs> and to your wife, Akita, I see her Trinidadianness. We get to talk about doubles and bust up shut and paluri and all of the good Trinidadian, because I got some Trinidadianness too. But here's the deal. We see our whatever it is-ness, but the difference and the distinction is that when you have been raised with Christ, the differences are no longer barriers to being in community together. They're no longer barriers to our being intimately identified with one another. See, what do you think Christianity is? Do you think it's just a, a way to punch a ticket to heaven? Do, do you think that Christianity is just this kind of wacky system of beliefs that turn people into warriors against the culture such that Christianity becomes defined by being against whatever it is the culture is in favor of? That Christianity now becomes defined by what it's against? Christianity is not primarily defined by what it is against. It starts here in this vision of a new we, the renewal and the restoration of the image of God in those who have been raised with Christ and whose lives, therefore, are hidden together with Christ in God. Now here's the challenge with all this new we stuff. What am I giving up for this new we? What am I giving up? What am I sacrificing? See, right, because my sense of my, my ethnic identity, it helps to ground me. It, it gives me some roots. Uh, sociologist Aaron Cooker, he put it this way in his statement. He says, the, the group dynamic of, of ethnic identity and ethnocentrism provides a way for people to know themselves in a world of dizzying and complex diversity. In other words, there's a sense of groundedness and rootedness in my ethnic identity, and it can be disorienting to be shaped into a new we. But the deal is this. I am not called to check my ethnic, ethnic identity when I enter the doors of the church. We're not called by 
God to check our gender at the door. We're not called by God to somehow strike a balance between identity and Jesus Christ, uh, Christian identity and ethnic identity as if uh, one washes away or washes out the other. What we are called to do is understand our ethnic identity as subservient to our identity in Jesus Christ. And a church that is healthy in diversity, it helps to form people in this way by revealing to me that my ethnic identity is not absolute. In other words, it's not the sum total of who I am. Listen, the fact of the matter is every, every identity that we have a tendency to make absolute, that we have a tendency to make the the sum total of our existence, whether it's our ethnic identity, our sexual identity, our gender identity, our generational identity, our intellectual identity, our athletic identity, and on and on and on, is subservient to identity in Christ because of what the Apostle Paul says. Christians' lives are hidden with Christ in God. And this is important because the commands that Paul gives in these verses is given to this new we. What are the commands? Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on the things that are above. Colossians, y'all ought to be seeking the things that are above and setting your minds on the things that are above together. Right? You, you can't help but be shaped and formed by the groups you're associated with. And you, we know this instinctively, right? We, we know that we are influenced by other people. You know, they, well, you, say, you know, Pastor, I'm an independent thinker. <laughs> well, you, you might be, but you wasn't so independent when your, when your parents said, no, you can't go. No, you can't watch that. No, you can't listen to that. No, you ain't hanging with them people. We might want to push back against that kind of formation, but those things become foundational for how we live and, and, and how our lives are, are, are shaped and formed by others. I mean, identity formation, in other words, is a group project. You don't form yourself. This is, listen, like the world of entertainment knows this. Now you see the you know the book, the Jungle Book? Let's see the movie, right? That's what that book is all about. That's what that movie's all about, right? Mowgli, this abandoned child, he's raised by wolves. Like, he loves his life of running with the wolves and is quite happy being a wolf on the inside and a human on the outside. That is, until his peaceful existence is threatened by the man-eating tiger, Shere Khan. Shere Khan returns to the jungle, and he's had some bad experiences with humans and has this scar on his face to remind him of it. So he's definitely not going to tolerate some man-child living in his jungle. And now Mowgli is in distress. He don't want to go back to the man village. He wants to stay with the wolves. You watch the movie, and you read the book, right, and you think, of course, listen, he's supposed to be in the man village. He's a man. He's a human being. But his sense of identity, right, wasn't shaped by human beings. It was shaped by wolves, so that's who he thinks he is. 
Paul is saying that in Jesus Christ, you all become this different we, and your sense of who you are is to be shaped and formed by that reality. The reality is that there's a new we that cuts across the lines of race and ethnicity and gender and education, and the influence of your life together is that you live in this new world. And what's new about this new world is that Jesus gives his people different eyes and a different mind. What starts to influence our formation, what starts to influence our identity, our sense of who we are, is the the things that are above, not the things on earth. Paul says you died in your life as being hidden with Christ in God. Listen, Colossians is a short letter. It's only got four chapters. But again and again and again and again, the apostle feels the need to remind them about death to the old self and life to the new self. That's why he reminds them in chapter 1 that Jesus is the first cause of the church, the firstborn from the dead. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose to new life. And then he says in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, in him, in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And we, okay, Paul, we get it now. I got it. Paul says, I'm not so sure you do. So he says in chapter 2, verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, don't taste, don't touch. Right on the heels of that, he repeats it again in verses 1 and 3 of our text. You all have been raised with Christ. You all have died with Christ. But you're not dead. You're alive. Having our lives hidden with Christ in God is a is real life in this real world with a new perspective, with our lives influenced and shaped by a new reality. Listen. I'm going to wrap this up. I, I promise, Pastor Duke, not in the black church kind of wrap this up. When I'm going from there. <laughs> Look. This is the third time in this letter Paul has talked about something being hidden. He keeps bringing that up. In chapter 1, he says he became a minister according to the stewardship from God to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. He said, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What had been hidden but is now revealed is the mystery that God was doing to demonstrate the riches of his glory by giving Jesus to Jews and Gentiles alike to people who were divided outside of him indiscriminately. Then at the beginning of chapter 2, he tells them that he has a great struggle for them and those at Laodicea. He says the struggle is that he wants their hearts to be encouraged. He wants them to be knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance uh, of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, he says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
So what does it mean to be hidden in Christ? The one who has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It means now having the ability and the desire to keep our heads in the clouds, to seek and set our minds on the things that are above. This is about practical, everyday living, heavenly mindedness, keeping our heads in the clouds. Again, it's not about daydreaming or spending my time wondering what heaven is going to be like. He's about to get very, very practical with them in the rest of this chapter. Heavenly mindedness is about putting to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. It's about putting off anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. It's about not lying to one another, about putting on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And you say, well, I don't need Jesus to be compassionate. I don't need to be a Christian to forgive other people. Right? Psychologists will tell you the benefit of just being a forgiving person to your own mental health. If that's what it means to be heavenly minded, why do I need Jesus? Well, don't forget, <laughs> he's creating a new we. This is just not about me being a compassionate, forgiving person. It's about the kind of community that God has created. It's about the defining characteristics of that community. Grace, Meridian Hill, what does God want our defining characteristics to be? How will this church demonstrate that the new world has broken in to the mess of the current world? When the United States establishes a relationship with other governments, one of the things they do, right, is we set up an embassy in their country. The embassy in that country is an extension of the United States, and the people who run the embassy are American citizens, and they represent American interests in a foreign uh, country. Well, the community of people whom God has hidden in Christ are an embassy of God's kingdom. The church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. That means it not only represents, but it extends kingdom interests in this world. The things that are above that Paul is talking about uh, are the interests of the kingdom of God. They haven't fully manifested themselves in this world, but they are at present the defining characteristics of those whose lives are hidden with Christ in God. Jesus Christ is necessary for this. He's necessary for this because the lives that make up this community are from, of people from different walks of life people who might not choose to be together unless it was for the fact that Jesus Christ has grabbed their hearts and placed them in community with other people whose heart he also grabbed. Jesus is necessary because his community is one who understands they've died and been raised to new life and this new life in it, they're not living just for themselves. Their eyes are focused on the king because they have a new identity. In Jesus Christ, we don't die to die, we die to live. Seeking the things that are above doesn't mean searching for them. Setting our minds on things above doesn't mean sitting down in quiet contemplation. Seeking and setting means having our lives shaped and formed by the things that are above. Understanding our sense of identity as coming from this heavenly reality. Reality that says Jesus Christ is sitting down at the right hand of God. The power of position and authority. Being wrapped up in him means having the power to have our lives shaped according to his likes and his dislikes, 
the power to have our lives shaped together by the extension of grace and mercy. And above all, as Paul says in verse 14, put on love. The binding glue of perfection. It is those are the most, who are the most heavenly minded, who are the most earthly good, who labor for the most earthly good. Why? Because our longings for peace and healing and restoration are not rooted in our ability or the ability of this world to manufacture it. We, have, we become people who live with a different expectation and a different perspective on what is good and right and true. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are about your work of forming us into a new we, that you are making your people, you make your people outposts of your kingdom to demonstrate the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness, the love, the compassion, and the kindness that reconciles people across all kinds of differences to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.